This week on the show, we have the Hamburg hybrid meeting that's hopefully going to happen. Demystifying OpenZFS 2.0, looking at OpenZFS 3.0, introduced at the Dev Summit, HardenBSD home infrastructure status, running Arc in parallel, installing Valent 1.19.91 natively on FreeBSD, soon going to be available, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now episode 432, introducing OpenZFS 3.0, yeah! Recorded on the 1st of December 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for the truly paranoids. And if you want to support our show, check out our Patreon on patreon.com slash bsdnow. Yep, if you sponsor $5 a month or more, you can get an ad-free version of the episode. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome, folks and fans of BSD Now. We are back as usual, like last week and many weeks before, with great headlines, as always. The first is a good start into the BSD user group uh, space, the Hambach hybrid, hybrid meeting. Yeah, uh, so, uh, you know, we had decided last month to try to do a hybrid meeting, having uh, some in person for people that were around, but still keep the online component because we've been getting uh, people from all over the place uh, attending the meetings, including like Australia and the US and so on. That just wouldn't be possible if uh, with the, the old fashioned in person meetings. But uh, so we decided to do that. And we're hoping that uh, we can manage to squeeze in one in person meeting this year before. Uh, Omicron maybe causes a whole another series of lockdowns and so Don't on. Get me started. Uh, so just in case, if we can uh, manage to get together in person once this year, uh, that'd be great. Because yeah, you know, we had two or three meetings before the pandemic, uh, maybe only two, I think. Um, and then the kibosh was put on that pretty quick. Uh, the online ones have been great, um, but getting to hang out with a couple of people uh, will be a novelty. Uh, at this point oh, yeah. uh, and so that'll be a nice christmas present for a couple of us i think maybe uh so if you're near hamilton and want to come out to the uh boston pizza restaurant um you can hit up our, our website there and check it out uh or you can join the the jitsi version and uh we can do that mm -hmm. and we will see you there be careful not to mix up hamburg.ca with hamburg.ca Okay, here we go now with the headlines that you have probably been looking for, but not quite there yet. First, we're doing a little bit of demystifying OpenZFS 2.0 over at Clara Systems, another article. So this goes, uh, to understand the need for a 2.0 version of ZFS, we need to look at a bit of ZFS history. So this is our little history section there, but don't get bored. Uh, just no. happened to be timed very nicely with uh, <laughs> the news from the Dev Summit of what the plan is for 3.0. Yeah. So they start off, or the article starts with, ZFS was originally developed at Sun Microsystems and released under an open source license as part of Open Solaris. The world was better back then in ZFS terms. But first we have to go through the valley of death and then we'll, you know, we're back here today 
free a bit more. Uh, when Oracle bought Sun, this is the dark era, and ended development of Open Solaris, most developers, or well, some at least, including many of the original ZFS developers, created Elomos, a fork of the last open source version of Sun's operating system that included ZFS so that open source development could continue. Over time, the Elomos code was ported to many operating systems, including FreeBSD in 2007 and Linux in 2008. In 2013, the OpenZFS project was created to coordinate the cross-platform development with the goal of providing a single common repository for OS-independent code. Pull requests for bug fixes and new features would be managed by the Elomos team. Version numbers were replaced by feature flags to differentiate OpenZFS from Oracle ZFS and to allow developers to decide which features to create and integrate into their OS-specific port. That same year, OpenZFS held its first annual developer summit to give developers of the various open source ZFS ports the opportunity to meet in person and participate in planning and coordinating efforts, as it should be. So as communication between developers increased and the actual work of maintaining operating system-specific ports continued, it became clearer over time that the development workflow envisioned by the OpenZFS project needed to be overhauled in order to better meet the needs of both developers and OpenZFS users. Features were beginning to diverge across the various operating systems. Not all of the bug fixes fixed in one operating system were upstream back, meaning other operating systems had to implement their own versions of bug fixes. Since each OS had their own community of developers, other communities weren't always aware of new development efforts, resulting in duplication of efforts for the same desired features. And so, yeah, it became clear that the new feature development had shifted from Elomos to Linux, since FreeBSD tracked Elomos commits, this meant that any new features and fixes created on Linux had to first be backported to Elomos before they could be reported to FreeBSD. Hmm. After much discussion and planning, it was agreed that it made sense for everyone to switch from Elomos to Linux as the upstream repository. And oh, sorry, that's that's ZFS on Linux, not just Linux. Just to be clear, it's right. It actually has very little to do with Linux, but it's just the the more modern ZFS code base. Yeah. Yeah. And it was agreed that the future changes would be discussed across platforms before being implemented and that there would be appropriate porting layers to prevent GPL or Linux KPI shim code from being introduced to other operating systems. Continuous integration for the repository would ensure that all proposed changes would have to pass the continuous integration or CI and both Linux and FreeBSD before they could be merged. Thus, the design of OpenZFS 2.0 was born. So if you want to know more about this, Matt Ahrens has some nice visual uh, slides from the 2019 OpenZFS development keynote presentation, and that's linked from the article. And, and, yeah. and basically the, the headline was that back in November of 2020, uh, the announcement went out that the former ZFS on Linux project has now been renamed to OpenZFS, replacing the old OpenZFS that was uh, originally designed to be a repo with no OS code in it and just the the guts of ZFS and then each project could port it, but it turned out no one was going to maintain the version that didn't work for them. Um, and so then it kind of just became this fork of Illumos that had, uh, when you made the pull request, they would then go and do the Illumos merging process, which was more involved uh, and didn't make sense for every open ZFS developer to have to learn. Um, but that wasn't happening quickly enough and so on. And so, uh, now we end up with this new OpenZFS project, which is one set of code that includes all the stuff required to make it work on Linux and on FreeBSD out of the same repository. And uh, we're both better for it now. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, also, OpenDataBase 2.0 is more than just an overhaul development process. It provides a slew of new features, including we've mentioned many of those in the past on this show. So I guess many listeners will be familiar with those. So I just mentioned the, uh, the bullet points here. Sequential Resilver, Persistent L2 Arc, Z-Standard Compression. I hear a lot of cheering in the background from people about these. Uh, redacted ZFS Send and Receive, Reorganized Man Pages, that's also quite a, a good addition here. Uh, support for inheriting and setting user properties and channel programs. ZFS weight and zpool weight. Uh, ZFS jail and ZFS unjail. Uh, ZFS rename u to rename a file system without remounting it. And the increased performance. Yeah, and a bunch of different ways. Yeah, so they're all good. And I guess most people are using the 2.0 uh, ZFS code base now. And so they still ask at the bottom of the article to participate. So even if you're not a developer, they always want people to give feedback, testing on your storage setup, which is probably very different than mine or anyone else's. So it's definitely good for the developers to get this feedback. Uh, and I guess just a little aside to this is uh, you've probably noticed we have quite a few articles from Clara being featured in the show and we've been writing a lot but we need more. Uh, so if you would like to write articles like the ones you just, uh, we just pointed you at there, um, please get in touch. Uh, we've uh, done a post over on the FreeBSD jobs mailing list uh, with the details and I put a link in the show notes here. Uh, so if you would like to work with us and help write articles like this, uh, that'd be great. Or if you just have some ideas for future articles, uh, you could email those to us or, or hit us up on social media. Okay, great. Now, let's let Alan take away OpenZFS 3.0 introduced at the Dev Summit. That was two weeks ago, roughly? Um, hmm. Almost a month ago now. Oh, I, think, even. I think we covered a lot of uh, what happened at the Dev Summit already. But okay. um, <laughs> importantly, what IX has here on their blog is uh, they talked about what's currently in the target for uh, FreeBSD, or sorry, OpenZFS 3.0, uh, which would come out sometime probably mid next year uh mm -hmm. so four to six months from now probably uh and the target is for that to include a bunch of interesting new stuff including um obviously what's already in 2.1 which was the d raid features and so on uh but 3.0 also uh slated to include raid z expansion which was sponsored by the previous d foundation and had a lot of uh interesting uh there was an update for that as part of the freebsd Vendor Summit just uh, two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, the Linux namespace support, which uh, Clara worked on. ZFS on object storage, uh, which is another interesting feature and was uh, a big feature of the OpenZFS Dev Summit. So if you want to know more about that, check that out. Mm -hmm. uh, forced export, uh, which is another feature that uh, Clara worked on. And that was if you have multiple pools and the disk behind one of them go away, like if it's a, a USB stick back pool or if it's a pool back by a remote network device and it's become disconnected or whatever, um, ZFS can end up hung in a way where you can't do certain ZFS commands even on the pool that's not broken. And so we've done some fixes for that and also the ability to say, okay, that pool that was on the USB stick that uh, you know we pulled out and we mailed to someone, um, <laughs> it's not coming back. So we need uh, to be able to get rid, export that pool and, and have it go away without requiring us to plug the USB stick back in. Uh, or, you know, currently your only recourse is to reboot. And with this feature, you're able to just unwind that pool and, and uh, 
you know, there might be some data that didn't ever get written to the USB stick. It only exists in memory. Hmm. Uh, and you can say, yes, I'm sure that I'm okay with that going away and it will go away. Uh, there's also the direct IO feature, which will allow you to say, hey, I'm reading this big file, but I don't need it to be cached. So don't store it in the arc and push some other files that maybe I will want to stay in the arc out, oh. uh, which can be faster. And then ideally for uh, OpenZFS 3.0, which, you know, if you remember 2.0 brought uh, Linux and FreeBSD support together into one repo. Uh, the idea with 3.0 is that will also include Mac OS support uh, as Ooh. well. How about Windows? I have to ask. Um, that probably we'll have to wait for 4.0 okay uh, you know, <laughs> one, there, one there's a version the for windows and it's it's mostly up to date uh -huh. uh, but it's a lot more glue to sort out and bring uh, more polishing so yeah. okay uh no promises but uh it's it's on the right path to eventually we'll get, get there out. all right um then the per vdev properties which is a feature i started i don't know like four years ago at a, at a vendor summit or at the open set of stuff summit uh that was merged yesterday morning Ooh, uh, and so that will definitely be part of 3.0 because that that's uh, in the the master branch as of yesterday. Excellent. Linux file map support, which I think is for reading parts of a file or something. And, uh, I'm not so sure about that one. Uh, then a feature from Del, uh, not Delphix, um, Dato, called uh, corruption correcting ZFS receive. So if you have a data set and you've replicated it to a backup, mm -hmm. if the backup then gets corrupt somehow. Because uh, maybe you use less redundancy on your backup, or who knows what happens. There's some some amount of damage happens on the backup. Uh, it will have a way to generate a, a little token you can give to the sending side that has a good copy to send it just the bits to fix the broken parts. Uh -huh. Without having to resend all, everything over again. Yes, yeah, so you don't have to resend everything. And that would work the other way around. Like if, you're, if your laptop somehow had a bad sector and you have the backup, you could do what's required to just fix the one file instead of everything. Although yeah. it's mostly meant for the other way because it's a backup service. Yeah, well, that sounds useful. And then, yeah. Uh, and then I'm less sure if this one will be ready in time, but the async DMU feature, which will allow um, improved performance for uh, writing to ZFS at less than the record size. Uh, so currently, if you have like a, a record size, the default's 128K, and you do a bunch of 4K writes to it, ZFS has to do a bunch of extra work, like read the whole 128K to check the checksum, modify it, and then write out the whole 128K. Um, but if you do all, if you do the entire 128K, 4K at a time, ZFS has done a lot of extra work there, where the async DMU allows it to defer some of that, like reading in the whole 128K, and be able to give it enough time to notice that, hey, you actually overwrote the whole block, so I never actually need to read the old block because you've overwritten the whole thing. But when you do them one step at a time, normally ZFS has to do all this extra work. Um, and that's uh, a big improvement, and we're looking forward to seeing that. Cool. I'm already excited, <laughs> even though I still haven't looked at all of the 2.0 features yet in detail. But yeah, I look yeah, forward like, to what's uh, coming. Last weekend is when I finally got around to adding a metadata VDEV to my home pool. So I now have a, a mirrored set of SSDs that store just metadata for my big pool at home. Uh, and it should make, it's definitely made you know, all my Git operations a bit faster. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's always something to optimize. So I uh, hear also about the hackathon projects. 
during the Dev Summit? Yeah, there were a bunch of different hackathon projects during the Dev Summit. Uh, I worked, uh, I spent a lot of time at the Dev Summit working with uh, Pavel Doedek on his uh, block reference tree feature, oh. which is basically a way to do per file cloning, but also a way to uh, move a file from, or copy or move a file from one data set to another without actually having to um, copy the data, only the metadata. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's kind of a, it's designed to solve some of the problems with dedupe in a way that works, you know, after the fact. So when you explicitly say, I want to copy this file over here, uh, you can basically do something similar to dedupe, but without, with the way dedupe works in ZFS, you would have had to have dedupe turned on the whole time for it to work uh, right now. With BRT, you don't. It, yeah. it works much nicer. And we got that uh, improved, and it's looking really nice. Um, then... My project, I worked on a new property called, uh, I need a better name for it, but you know how there's the alt root setting in ZFS? Mm -hmm. So when you do import a pool, you can say, you know, prepend this path to all of the mount points. Yeah, put it somewhere else, not in the yeah. uh, original Yeah, it can be really handy to make sure when you're importing uh, a pool, it doesn't mount things over top of the your local system. Um, what I needed was something like that that could be at a data set level. Um, so uh, on my backup uh, server, where I'm sending my laptop to it, I want all the paths for my laptop to appear under slash laptop slash whatever the path is. Mm. Uh, but I don't want to have to manually modify all the mount point properties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because certain. I want to be able to restore them by sending it back to my laptop. Mm -hmm. uh, no, and so this sense. is currently, it needs a better name, but currently it's just, ZFS set alt root instead of zpool set alt root. Um, Let's call it, it Allen root. Is, <laughs> I don't know. Something like that. And it just means that every data set under here gets this name prefixed. And it's compatible with the pool alt root. So it actually goes the pool alt root, then the data set alt root, then the actual amount point. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and <sighs> that's what I worked on. And then I also helped uh, somebody work on some man pages and a bunch of other stuff. And uh, it was a good hackathon. Oh, yeah. Seems like uh, I, just when you thought ZFS couldn't get any better, people still come up with cool features that we can get excited about. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, the one you just mentioned, the VDEF properties feature that's been merged. Okay. Uh, so that basically allows you to set. So currently you can set properties on the pool and then you can set properties on a data set. And data sets also support user properties. Um, this patch adds the ability to set both properties and user properties on VDEPs, the individual disks or the, the top level thing like a mirror or RAID Z, um, and allows you to do settings. Currently, there's only a couple of things you can actually set, which is like there's a comment, uh, you can change the path. So if you've ever had a pool where like one disk was like ADA0P3 and the other disk was like the, the partition label, and that's what you wanted, you can do zpool set path equals the right path pool name vdev name and it'll update it to the right thing um so you can set the path the comment and then there's uh an allocating or yeah allocating property uh which can be used to queue multiple disks for removal um but that only really applies if you're using the vdev removal feature um but it adds a lot of read-only properties you can get all kinds of statistics from each disk now out of with the ZFS properties interface. And that's quite nice uh, to be able to look at, you know, how many reads and writes are going to each disk or each mirror, um, but a bunch of other interesting things like that. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and user properties. So you can tag any uh, made up property that you want onto a VDEV uh, to do interesting stuff to it, uh, which can make management of your disks a lot easier. Uh, you know, one thing I've done is even stuffing the entire contents of the gpart backup command for a disk into its properties mm -hmm. so that um you know if you need to replace that disk you know exactly how it was partitioned before oh yes and you can re yeah restore yeah, this and because the zap uh the the key value pair structure that's used to store all this data is part of the pool it has the redundancy level of the pool so uh even if the disk is dead you can still read uh its its properties uh, mm -hmm. most of the properties anyway cool i'll play with that yeah I and now that it's in um <laughs> we're looking if anybody has ideas for properties to add whether they're read-only or settable um we're definitely open to ideas there zfs is coming up in my unix lecture and i probably have to edit a couple more slides but then it's always like i could talk so long about this and the students are like okay we get it it's a cool feature it's a cool uh you know file manager yeah. but well we've done like <laughs> 432 episodes of bsd now about zfs right? exactly right so we can never stop there's always something to talk about but yeah so we whet your appetite for upcoming zfs changes and uh there is other stuff we also should mention in our news roundup for example we have here the october 2021 home infrastructure status from hardened bsd and I'm fairly sure that's a status report from Sean Webb. Yep, here we go. Um, he writes, please note that this is a living document. So he plans to evolve this article in step with the infrastructure. Uh, if you're interested in following the evolution of this document, please look at the git commit history. Okay. Uh, his infrastructure at home is slowly growing so that he's working from home or now that he's working from home 99% of the time. He wants to make sure that his home network is as locked down as it can get. So he also uses his home network as a playground for both hardened BSDs and his works production network. So first he talks about a bit about uh, the home. Uh, that goes, uh, the Fios fiber line is terminated at his house with the ethernet cable going from the fiber termination into the home. So he can just directly connect to his HawkSense firewall rather than use their crappy insecure modem. The bulk of the infrastructure is located in his messy, unfinished basement. Is that not everywhere messy in everyone's basement? But yeah, uh, since the internet contamination point is there, his home office is right next to where the equipment sits. Unfortunately, their HVAC doesn't service the basement. Hmm. So his home office got up to 89 Fahrenheit this summer. Oops. However, the wireless access point is on the main floor. They have three floors, basement, main floor, and upper. Uh, their home is built as if it were a townhouse, though it's not classified as one. And he has CAT6 cable running between the floors. Uh, he has a TP-Link L3 managed switch on the main floor, a Cisco SG350 in the basement, and the CAT6 cable connects both switches. He regrets buying the TP-Link switch as it doesn't support nearly the same features as he has on the SG350. Where possible, all systems are connected via Ethernet, and he tries to keep, uh, tries to keep the number of active wireless devices to an absolute minimum. Then he talks about the core infrastructure. Uh, he's eating his own dog food by running the proprietary fork of OpenSense called HawkSense uh, that he's working on at his dollar day job as his perimeter firewall. And while OpenSense is moving back towards FreeBSD, HawkSense will remain on hardened BSD. He's using Hurricane's Electric 
Tunnel Broker Service for IPv6. Even if Verizon files residential service supported IPv6, their business service does, he'd still want to use the Tunnel Broker so that he can maintain his own static slash 48 address or network. Yeah. As far as hardware is concerned, the perimeter firewall is protect protectly. That's that's kind of a tongue twister. Okay, so FW6C with 32 gigs of RAM, a 20, 128 gig system drive, and a one terabyte data drive. It's full ZFS install, so no UFS. And then he has a little bit of a, a diagram how that network uh, looks like in ASCII art. Uh, let's move on to the Firefall section because that's difficult to explain here. We have to look at the show notes there. Firewall. As mentioned before, Hawksense is his firewall. It's a proprietary fork of OpenSense. It's been working on his dollar day job for now over a little uh, year, over a year. So as mentioned, Hawksense will remain on HardenBSD, while in January 2020, OpenSense will switch back to FreeBSD. And Hawksense is currently based on HardenBSD 13 stable. He's working with the executive team uh, at his day job to hopefully provide a free or reduced cost version of Hawksense for open source slash hobbyist slash home lab communities. And in addition to being based on a security-focused OS, there's a lot of extra goodies in Hawksense or that you don't find anywhere else in the whole infosec industry. He has a very strict set of egress rules, he writes, using allow lists to filter the traffic. Most notably, Sean blocks all outbound DNS unless it comes from his own DNS server. He tried uh, blocking plaintext HTTP for a while until he learned that WSUS, the Windows Update Service, uses HTTP rather than HTTPS. Welcome to 2021. Suricata is enabled in IPS mode using a good number of DET open rule sets. Then he has a section about uh, syslog, how he has hardened that and how he uh, you know, the, has a separate syslog server and how he sends the uh, logs over there to have them uh, at a central place. Uh, the section on DNS has uh, the information about the APU2 running hardened BSD, unbound, and void zones tools. In a similar vein, void zones tools gives him the same core functionality uh, of the Pi hole. Since this is a home network, he doesn't worry about having redundant DNS servers. He writes a solo, and there's a little section from his cron tab to uh, void those zones or the void, void the zones update. There's many more sections about his NAS, his uh, development laptop, mobility laptop. So again, this is a living document. And if you want to check out some of his config files that he provided that don't contain any passwords, of course, but show how he does things, then check out his posting that we have linked from the show notes. Next up, we have a, an interesting one here about using awk uh, to process large volumes of records. Uh, so there, rather than using some fancy uh, thing like Hadoop or whatever. Uh, they're just uh, massively parallel processing data using awk. Uh, so they have a high performance computing cluster uh, managed using a tool called Swift, not to be confused with Apple's programming language, uh, at the Argonne National Laboratories uh, in the US there. Uh, so it's mostly awk, but they also use, you know, uh, sort, grep, tr, sed, some uh, bash, and then some tools like JQ, D3, GraphViz, and FFmpeg. Um, so interestingly, what they have is a an SGI system that has 24 terabytes of RAM and a total of 512 uh, Intel Xeon cores at 2.5 gigahertz. And they run all of their workload directly out of memory, uh, so there's no disk to slow things down. Uh, so they're using uh, GNU Awk version 4 for most of this work here. Um, and then they as part of a, a challenge here, they use this to uh, perform some work on some large data sets 
that are part of the uh, scientific publications mining challenge mm -hmm. uh, that has number four, which has five problems that they challenge a bunch of different teams to try to solve. Um, so basically you get 322 separate JSON files, each containing a million records. Uh, and, but some of those are duplicates. And so uh, when you whittle it down using the first little aux script they wrote, uh, there are about 256 million unique records. Uh, and it totals about 329 gigabytes of data, uh, which is quite a bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so then their solution, you know, they do some pre-processing with JQ to turn the JSON into tabular data that they can feed into uh, awk. And then, you know, they also do some post-processing uh, for visualizations with D3 and GraphViz and so on. Uh, and they can also use FFmpeg to stitch images together uh, to make trending terms and cause an animation and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they use GraphViz to make a, a network graph showing how papers, uh, citations are linked to each other. So the first problem, uh, the statement is identify the individual or group of individuals who appear to be an expert in one particular field or subfield. Uh, so in this one, they wrote a small awk program basically uh, that goes through and uh, grabs the data and then looks for on a specific topic uh, where it has more than zero authors and uh, more than 500 citations, then we wanna print out the citation, the title, the author and the year, and then basically figure out, you know, which people are uh, experts on a topic. Uh, then they have a second approach, finds the names of authors whose names are repeated for a specific topic with at least a certain number of citations in each entry. Uh, so they have a different version that looks for authors who have more uh, have papers that have been cited more than a thousand times and so on. And they find that uh, in that version, their HPC cluster can find the solution in about 25 seconds just by using this awk program. They also have an example of the network graph you can get and, and see what it looks like. Right. Problem number two is identify topics that have been researched across all publications. So then they have to kind of break it down by keywords and which paper uh, journals it was in and so on. And they found that using their HPC cluster, they can do that in about nine minutes, which is interesting. And the third problem was to visualize the graphic distribution uh, or sorry, the geographic distribution of topics in a publication. So for example, here they went and looked for um, all the research on birds and then cross-reference what uh, universities that was from to then what cities and what countries they're in. Uh, and then kind of doing a, a, gra a world map and showing bigger and bigger dots based on how much research on that topic came out of each of the different schools. Uh, and then looking at like how uh, topics have shifted over time. Uh, so they have a graph is graph showing the number of papers published and how that affects things. Um, and then zooming in on it and seeing that, you know, uh, obviously when they were working on their data in 2020, uh, 2020 wasn't over yet. So the number of papers that year was down and, you know, with COVID uh, that interrupted a lot of people's school years <laughs> as well. <laughs> And interesting things that they did with that and how they also made visualizations out of it. And they showed the whole uh, awk source code so you can grab the nuggets, how they did certain things out of them. Yep. And then they did a bit of a harder one, which was given a proposed research uh, topic, determine whether this work has been accomplished previously by someone else. Uh, and so they built another thing that was able to 
compare, you know, these four topics in English uh, by an author with a name and then tell me, you know, has anybody done this before? Uh, and then uh, as it turns out, uh, this person actually won the contest from the uh, s the scientific data challenge or uh, thing. Well earned, I would say. Wow. So definitely looking at the arc and uh, being yet another amazing example that you don't have to have, as Alan said, Hadoop or, or friends, you can do basic shell utilities or basic command line tools. Yeah. Like I remember seeing this uh, at BSD can many, many years ago, but the, I think it was called Unicage. It was uh, very similar finding that um, basically using the Unix pipe as part of this uh, and a way to get the parallelism of, you know, each thing in the pipe can run on a different CPU. Mm. And so if you have a long pipeline, you can use a lot of CPUs. Um, and the fact that you have the ability to save the incremental steps, right? So using T or whatever to save off your results, like, you know, halfway through your pipeline means that if you decide you need to change something in the lighter part of the pipeline, you don't have to start over necessarily. You can start at one of these kind of checkpoints that you program into it. Yeah, so definitely uh, well worth looking at Arc and learning just a little bit from it to see how powerful and flexible it is. Okay, and then we have a small announcement, but maybe not so small for some people. It's FreeBSD Announce uh, of Wayland 1.19.91. So this is actually the official Wayland developer list, not a FreeBSD Right, list. not the one from FreeBSD. Yeah, it's, it says Free Desktop, not FreeBSD. All right, uh, Simon Sir posted to that. Uh, this is the alpha release for Valent 1.20. The release contains the following major changes. First one they list there is the FreeBSD support has been entirely upstreamed and has been added to our continuous integration system, which means that FreeBSD is a first-class citizen. First class in Wayland, and because it's part of their CI, it means that if uh, somebody makes a change to Wayland and it turns out to break FreeBSD, um, the Wayland CI will tell them about it immediately and they'll have a chance to fix it while they're still thinking about the code they were writing uh, as opposed to now before this, if they made a change, it broke FreeBSD, they didn't know, then months later that version gets released and it gets ported to FreeBSD and then we find the problem. And by the time we report it back to them, they're not working on that part of Wayland anymore and uh, it doesn't help. So. Yes, it's very important uh, that we have this, so it's great, but it does mean that, uh, you know, when the their CI does find problems, they might need help from people that understand FreeBSD to get it fixed as well. You know, uh, sometimes it's just, oh, we need to know what the FreeBSD way to do the equivalent of this thing we're doing is. Yeah. Uh, and it's important that we help them because if it's just always broken on FreeBSD, they're going to just turn the CI back off again. But uh, this is... Uh, Great work, and we're very happy to see it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's also work uh, still going on in the FreeBSD fabricator, the review system, about uh, an, a handbook article about how to set up Valent on FreeBSD, with, like the compositor and you know all the well, goods. Uh, judging by it here, I think Alex Richardson is is one of the people at Cambridge, right? I think uh, so. It must be, be him. Yeah. The, the, well, I guess the list is alphabetical, but it does look he's got the second most commits in this version, and most of them say FreeBSD in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so yeah, they have a list of all the, the individual changes that, that enabled FreeBSD. So that's great. Yeah, so thanks for that work. Uh, and I guess uh, as Wayland becomes more and more popular, then like, more people will contribute or help testing and provide feedback. 
Pretty it good. looks like at least one of these fixes was uh, they found the problem, had to fix it in FreeBSD, and then change Wayland to detect uh, if it's using new enough FreeBSD to have the fix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonderful. It's good news for uh, both Wayland and FreeBSD because it could also be that FreeBSD folks detect an error in you know Wayland that is useful to fix on all the other platforms. So it's give and take both ways. Before we jump into our feedback and questions, we should mention our episode is sponsored by Tarsnap, the friendly folks that keep our data safe, but in the safe way uh, that you would expect from a backup service in the cloud. And they start not at the security in the cloud, they started right where your data was leaving your computer or where it sits, because they encrypt the data locally with the key that you generate. And only then, after they deduplicated and compressed it as well, so they usually are a bit smaller than you originally had. Uh, then this encrypted data, only the encrypted data leaves your computer and are stored in the Tarsnap cloud, which resides on Amazon's AWS. And there it sits encrypted. No one can look at it because it's for them gibberish. They can't complain or they can't look at actually what's going on to be in there but one fateful day when your computer needs those files back very very early and uh, very urgent then you can do the reverse you download is still as long as you have your key your personal key that encrypted the data uh, tarsnet will help you then uh, to do the reverse like unencrypting downloading and uncompressing and giving you your original files back tarsnet is pay as you go so you charge your account with i had to charge uh, up uh, a couple of weeks ago, they sent me a message saying, hey, your account is running low, you need to charge back up. Uh, and so that's what I did. And then uh, my storage files are still there. And so it's very uh, easy to do because if you know Charsnap or Tar, then it's fairly similar because many of the commands and switches are similar because it's built on the familiar Tar tool. And so Tarsnap adds its own special sauce to it. Check out also the book about Tarsnap if you really want to have something to read. It's Tarsnap Mastery by Michael W. Lucas. And you can also find documentation, technical details, and other parts about Tarsnap on Tarsnap's website, www.tarsnap.com. Okay, it's feedback and questions time on BSD Now. And we have our first submission to our feedback and questions email, which is feedback at bsdnow.tv. And that one comes from Brad, uh, who has sent us questions earlier. So uh, we'll be happy to answer this one as well, uh, if we can, about running Linux binaries on the FreeBSD. And Brad writes this time, by the way, hello. Uh, he writes, hello, Alan, Benedict, and Tom, and JT. Yeah, the list gets longer <laughs> from time to time. So he writes, I'm having a bit of an issue getting Linux binaries to run on a FreeBSD 13 desktop. I recently purchased Kerbal Space Program, oh, such addiction there, KSP, from good old games or GOG. I got the Linux code as well as the Windows code. Wine appears to be so broken on FreeBSD that I am unable to install KSP from the Wine installer. So I opted to attempt to install the Linux version of the program. I tried several things to get Kerbal running, but I feel like I'm missing or have overlooked something critical. I have been following the Linux Elator page, and uh, that's probably the wiki page, and according to the first try of the Linux-C7 directory tree in slash compat slash Linux. I then tried building it. So what, the thing I'm not clear on there is if they installed the package or if they manually tried to populate this somehow. Well, I think they go on to say that they tried to build a Ubuntu tree in compat slash Ubuntu and 
That's ah, oh, I see. Meant to do. Yeah, the next sentence. Yeah, I didn't like, try. Uh, Linux-C7 is the name of a package you can just install on FreeBSD and it will populate the Compat Linux for you the right way. It's definitely not meant for you to just randomly try to throw a Linux install in the directory and hope it'll work. Yeah, maybe that uh, wiki page gave that impression. Oh yeah, so he tried building that Ubuntu tree in slash compat u slash Ubuntu. That didn't work either. So he built a Debian Linux, which is Debian minus system D. Uh, none of these worked. So he set up a Debian Linux jail in IOCage. And he tried to SSH dash XY into the jail and launch Kerbal or even GLX gears. He got the X error, uh, error, failed request, bad value, and some more. So can we suggest anything that might uh, help here or is missing? So this probably... Uh, I don't have much experience with this type of thing. Yeah, so um, I think it's probably because of the uh, botched install in Compat Linux. So I guess the, the Linux that you have there is not working properly. So you, if you really want to use that, you could definitely use uh, Beehive and set up Beehive to uh, play this game. Well, you're not going to have graphics though. That, yeah. Like how you, a Beehive doesn't have a way to show you the pictures. Though. Right, right. So that wouldn't work. Oh, I missed um, that, yeah. The the GLX gears error is a bit confusing. You know, it says bad value, but it doesn't say what opcode it was trying to perform and so on. Uh, I Maybe somebody, maybe another viewer knows or has managed to get KSP to work. Uh, I thought... I don't know. Yeah, I, I thought... Areas I normally spend time on. Yeah, maybe uh, something in the FreeBSD forums, uh, how to and FAQ have something about because I thought I had read something there a while back. There's one article setting up Debian Linux jail on FreeBSD and guess those instructions are still valid. Or there's one for Linuxulator how to install the Brave as a Linux app on FreeBSD 13 plus. So maybe you can drag some from uh, information from there into uh, into your setup. I think I would start over with the setting up the Linux compatibility layer, the Linux later, and then uh, it should get uh, use a working Linux later from where you can then uh, install the Kerbal Space program. But yeah, if anyone else has uh, this done or has a solution for this, then let us know and we'll be happy to link this up. Uh, again, this is feedback at bsdnow.tv. Sorry, Brad, we couldn't help further. We should play more games. <laughs> Um, but then, yeah, we'll we'll be in a whole different uh, place. But yeah, enjoy it if it if it's working. I hear it's very cool. So next up is Lars uh, with finding BSD topics via the search engine. And Lars writes, "Hi Tom, Alan, Benedict, and JT. Currently, if I search any of the Google services for the string BSD, I might or might not find much, if anything, even remotely relevant to any of the BSDs. This goes double for YouTube." Uh, this has been a situation for a long while now. Way back before Google dropped the Don't Be Evil motto, it used to have a specialized search interface yeah, to help find and promote material. I remember those. It's google.com slash BSD and they had only the BSD stuff in there. Yeah, But they merged it with the rest of the uh, search engine. So it's uh, not the same anymore. Yeah. So whatever happened to it, it was discontinued back in 2011. Uh, Google said that these services were established many years ago to offer search across a limited index of the web, uh, you know, particularly targeting your know, mailing lists and forums and, and things that were definitely about uh, Linux and BSD and so on, um, which in the past were better ways to find this information. Today, search quality has advanced tremendously. And based on our analysis, we found that in most cases, you're better off looking for this kind of specialized information using the regular Google search box. 
um, by typing, you know, FreeBSD upgrade or whatever, rather than just going to the BSD one and searching about upgrade. Part of that is, you know, as the decentralized web kind of took off a bit, it turned out that all the information about BSD wasn't focused on these, you know, four websites or whatever. And if you want, you know, the main search gained the ability to say, you know, search only freebsd.org sites and so on. Um, and so it didn't make as much sense to have the separate one. Um, sometimes I miss it, although in general, if you're searching for just the word BSD, that's probably why you're having a problem. You know, many things are not that common between uh, the BSDs. And so you're going to want to specify which BSD you're searching for rather than just putting, you know, BSD and firewall or something. Yeah, project you're names say is better. Yeah. The specific version of BSD that you want to use and its firewall, you know, Technically, BSD as a word by itself refers to a different operating system that last came out in the 90s. Uh, and so, yeah, it can be hard to find stuff about. And a three-letter acronym could also mean, I don't know, beetroot, seed, distribution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and things like that. Um, How do you search uh, for FreeBSD stuff on the web? Just regular Google, usually. Um, do you put a project name first before the, any other search terms? or? Um, Often, or, you know, if you put FreeBSD in quotes in the search, it will mean that don't show me any page that doesn't explicitly contain the word FreeBSD somewhere on it, which can help make sure you don't find out, you know, uh, pages that are about Linux in the same function name as the one you're looking for or whatever. But those are just pretty standard, you know, uh, Google search technique things. So I sometimes go directly to the forums uh, and use the search engine there. If it's very specific and I know yeah, it's only in FreeBSD just, or about FreeBSD. If you do site colon freebsd.org uh, as part of your search, then it will limit the search to only uh, subdomains of the freebsd.org website, uh, which you know should include the forums, uh, the docs, the main website, and uh, the mailing list and things like that, but not other things. Yeah. Um, what about the other projects? Uh, they're probably similar if you... Yeah, you can do basically do similar things. Uh, you know, UmBSD's journal is called Undeadly, so you might have to put, you know, do a separate search to, to pick up that because it doesn't actually have OpenBSD in the name and it's not a subdomain of OpenBSD. But yeah, I guess it depends what kind of material you're looking for as well. Um, like if you're looking for uh, recorded video talks and presentations, uh, we've created papers.freebsd.org that's designed to collect the papers, slides, and videos uh, for conferences uh, that have something to do with FreeBSD. Um, and there's a couple specific channels on YouTube, uh, like BSD conferences and so on. I think that mostly contains all the Asia BSD con conferences or videos. And then BSD can has a channel that has uh, the more modern BSD ones. Although I think some of the previous years are under uh, what used to be called had a name of a, it was a company that did open source conferences, but then at ah, some yes. point in the past, YouTube changed their policy to make people use their real names. And so the channel name changed to the person's real name. Mm -hmm. And so it's very confusing sometimes uh, as far as, you know, why is this all the, why is BSD can for this three year period posted on what appears to be someone's personal YouTube account? Uh, that's because YouTube changed the rules at one point and, and caused yeah. that to happen. 
but even on YouTube, you could also find better results, not typing BSD, but you know, again, OpenBSD, FreeBSD, NetBSD. Okay. Yeah, oh, you probably helps. just have to do the searches one at a time. Uh, it can be uh, a bit annoying, but it's what mm, it is. What it is. It is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hope, hopefully, your searches are better now, and you find what we're looking for. Otherwise, you post your question to us again, and we'll be uh, trying to helping as well. Okay, last one for this week is Mark with, uh, oh, he wants to get our views on the question on Reddit uh, about, uh, let me just Docker. go there. Yeah. So why does the FreeBSD community hate Docker and Kubernetes so much? Ooh, this is already <laughs> quite I heated. I wouldn't say hate necessarily. Um, well, there's a lot of different aspects to it. Yeah. Um, one of them is obviously the, the concept of we're not going to offer the ability to build our software from source code or package it. We're just going to make this Docker image that you're expected to download and run. And it just contains, you know, all the dependencies that weird versions that might be vulnerable, whatever. And it's just like, here's the whole thing. You just run it and, and don't look at what's inside it kind of thing is a little uh, anathema of the way BSD people like to build things, but I don't think it's that so much. Personally, I think part of it's just it's this weird thing that I don't really understand. Um, it's complex. It's big. I've not managed to find somebody that understands both the FreeBSD side, jails and so on, and Docker well enough to explain to me what some of the differences are and what the missing pieces are in order to build something like that for FreeBSD. Uh, I often get very kind of hand wavy things. Well, it just does this all this stuff for you, and it's like, well, what though? <laughs> mm. um, and then Kubernetes. My understanding is is mostly about scheduling and just like I, I have a bunch of servers over here. I need an extra container, and it decides which one to put it on for you, and can shuffle them around. Um, and that's interesting. And I think Nomad from HashiCorp does something similar to that, and, and supports BSD jails. But um, part of it is also that ends up you know people want this thing because it's. They keep hearing how it's the future of DevOps, even though nobody can explain exactly what it does. Um, but even if you made it work on FreeBSD, it wouldn't do exactly what it does on Linux. Right? Like if it's FreeBSD's Linux emulation layer is never going to perfectly be bug for bug compatible with what you could run on Linux. And so, you know, why would you? Wouldn't you rather just run the app natively on BSD rather than go pick up a Linux container and run it on uh, FreeBSD? Yeah, it's it's a very. So, uh, I don't think there's actually that much hate. It might just be a couple of vocal people. Um, my annoyance with it is mostly that I don't understand it, and no one's been able to uh, provide the right context to explain it. Like. The people that use a lot of Docker tend not to also be people that have well understood the equivalent things on FreeBSD to kind of explain where the analogous bits are. Right. Uh, and, so, and I know, you know, I can't just expect people to, to explain it to me, uh, but I just haven't had the interest to go dig into it either. Yeah, someone needs to, you know, 
either port it or start working on it and that's usually difficult because it's such a well, big software to, to even start on it one would have to understand what's different and which things can be translated which ones might not able to be be and so porting it doesn't ever make any sense mm -hmm. and this would be a huge project even with the changes that happen in kubernetes all the time or docker that also needs catching up right so it's it's definitely interesting as alan said and so i'm we have it at, at the university i'm not sure if we need it in this in this scale uh because we're not the amazons the the big component companies out there that have a need for this infrastructure don't get me wrong i just wonder if we're just uh putting too much of it where we just use 20 percent of the overall feature set i'm not sure i haven't looked at it too much myself um maybe i will in the future but at the moment it's what i have is working i guess needs are different for other people but again if no one's working on it because they don't understand it or have no need for it uh, in their own environment and of course no one will start such a thing and uh, I, but i don't think this is a hate uh, thing at the moment it's just hey it's something out there we're not supporting yet no one has worked on it yet so or not too far uh, and so it's not there it's not available that's and people have to know this before they use freebsd in this kind of context and then it's it's known and then people can pick a different solution it's yeah it needs a whole big uh episode probably to unpack all of the details um but these are just our bits about it uh yeah oh by the way we are running low on uh, questions from uh, users so if you have anything about the bsds or about the show any feedback you want to give us definitely send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv because otherwise future episodes will be very dry in this department and come to a very short and abrupt end at this point and that's why we keep this episode uh, to an end now and we'll be happy to if you listen to us again next week and uh, provide us feedback over uh, Twitter, maybe twitter.com slash bsdnow or uh, visit our Patreon and maybe uh, look at uh, what offers uh, we have there for you and then otherwise listen to us again next week. Yes, and if you have any ideas about what you would like uh, to see us add as uh, perks for Patreon, we're definitely open to ideas. Yeah, this is still new. And if you have a feature, that we should provide or that would make sense for us to do, then let us know and we'll discuss it internally and then maybe extend this uh, offering. 